Hey everybody, Ian here from the editing room. Just wanting to come in here before we get started in the episode with a quick note. The audio quality on this episode isn't as good as some of our past episodes have been. James and I are still trying to figure out the nuances of recording in person. And in this particular episode, we were figuring out how to go from one mic to two mics and... It just ended up that I put my microphone in the wrong spot, and his microphone was a little bit low, so the mics didn't pick us up as cleanly as they should have. We're working on getting this straightened out, and we should have this nailed down pretty soon, I hope, so that we'll get back up to the audio quality that I expect out of my podcast. So, thanks for bearing with us. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Talk to you soon. Welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Inside you are two wolves. They're using pack tactics to gain advantage and eat your liver. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we are talking a little bit more about lycanthropes and TTRPGs. Um, last episode we talked a little bit about the historical and real world mythology of lycanthropes. So today we are going to talk a little bit more about the mechanical side, how to use them in your games. This is kind of always a fun thing. I've always found Lycanthropes to be a fun character on the table. Definitely an interesting enemy if you're not expecting it. And I think that is one of the things we'll discuss is how to properly, you know, play and present uh, Lycanthropy. And I think especially for a villain, that should be something that comes out of the pocket last. They shouldn't go into such things expecting a Lycanthrope fight. Most days, I think. Yeah, I think that's a pretty reasonable thing. I mean, that is that 11th hour, aha! Right. He's like, I am not left-handed. Exactly. That's sort of a thing. So I guess we'll just go ahead and dive straight in. The earliest example that I was able to find for lycanthrope stats were the werewolves in the Monstrous Manual for D&D 1E, 1977. I mean, that's pretty early. You're going to have a hard time finding something early yeah. than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um... Unfortunately, I don't have a copy of the first edition Monster Manual, so I couldn't look through it and see if there were any other types of lycanthropes right. in that one. But the werewolf specifically was present in the 1E Monster Manual Gary Gygax wrote. There are multiple variants in the second edition Monster Manual, which I do have a copy of, along with rules for contracting lycanthropy, rules for inflicting lycanthropy as a curse... And rules and guidelines for creating your own custom lycanthropes. And see, that is the thing I really love about second edition. I mean, everyone complains about the tables and how dense it is, but they really have rules for almost everything. Yeah, it's just a matter of whether or not you want to take the slog and <laughs> go through, through all of them. Read all that. And um, again, this was the late 80s, early 90s. This was before we had the internet. So, I mean, what else are you doing all day? That is true. The third edition books also had very similar rules. So they did sort of adapt that a little bit. 
for third edition. Third edition. But again, the rules in third edition tend to be considerably lighter. Still a lot of information presented, but again, this is where D&D started moving more towards roleplay than just pure combat simulation. And again, now third edition is going to be more reflective of like those who play Pathfinder and some other D20 systems. Um, a lot of those are based off of the core of third edition. Absolutely, yeah. And another thing that was pointed out in the second edition monster manual, something that I did find in the little bit of research I was doing for last episode is that technically most of them would fall under the category of what is called a therianthrope. Therios meaning animal, anthropos for man. So it is a man animal, and that lycanthrope would be a subcategory of that. Man beast. Yes, man beast. <laughs> beast man, man beast. Oh my. There are also inverse of these creatures, which were referred to as antherians, which are animals that can transform into people. Okay, and I kind of like that. Again, one of the old fantasy series that I really cut my teeth and grew up on was the Bulgarian series. There was a second series beyond that, the Malorian, and there is a fairly significant character who presents towards the end of the first series and very much in the second. Who was one of these? She was initially a wolf and then she took human form later so right and so the only named examples that i was able to find were the wolfware and the jackalware yes yes i see the gears going yeah that's just um that's some lazy naming i'm sorry come up with something better (laughs) but apparently there's also really bad blood between werewolves and wolfwares and they take great umbrage if you confuse the two i culturally the way neighboring cultures tend to have that animosity, I could see that. It makes me feel a little squeaky. I don't know. I just, I can't. <laughs> um, now, I, I know for a fact that Jackal Wears made it into third edition. I don't think that Wolf Wears made it out of second edition. They may have, and I just missed it. But I know that Jackal Wears are in third edition. I don't know if they made it to fifth. Now, the only thing I'm thinking is pin, pineapple, pineapple, pin. <laughs> I've got a wolf. I've got a wear. Mmm, wolfware. <laughs> yeah. I just happen to have my monster manual sitting next to me, so I'm going to look and see. Yes, jackalwares are in 5e. Oh, well, well, there they are. Yeah, so page 193 of the monster manual. Looks a little bit like Anubis. Uh, a little bit. Well, they're jackals that turn into people. Yeah, so. so I mean, it's... And I don't think that they fully transform. I think they go from an animal form to a hybrid form. Okay. And never actually transform fully into a humanoid form. Gotcha. I would say that if you were to take something going off of another folklore creature, something like a kitsune, okay, which is the fox spirit. You're right. If you were to take them a little less of a spirit and a little more of a creature, okay, they would probably fall into the Antherian category. I could see that. Okay. So as lycanthropes have passed through from edition to edition, they have been paired back. Just like everything else. Of course. In 5e, they can transform as an action from one form to another. They get a flat increase to their strength or, in the case of were-rats, to their decks. Uh, They just flat change their strength score. Okay. Uh, So, like, were-bears, you just automatically get a strength 19 unless you have a higher strength. Oh, nice. Uh, I think it's a 19 for bears, a 17 for boars and tigers, and a 15 for wolves, I think. 
That sounds reasonable. I mean, there's the whole, you know, who would win a bear versus a gorilla. So I could see a weird gorilla would be kind of a, a thing to weirdly throw yes. in there. Yeah. Um, but I would probably put that at a 19 too. So yeah, I could see, I could definitely see like a large brown bear, you know, where bear Kodiak, something polar bear being at a 19 versus a black bear, which is considerably smaller. Yeah. I would say like a where black bear would fall more closer to the 17 strength. <laughs> yeah. And a, and a tiger, again, tiger is definitely a formidable animal and nothing you want to meet in the wild while it's hungry, but it's going to be more of an agility-type creature than a strength creature. So I could see a slightly lower strength score yeah. on that one, so it makes sense. And then most of them gain a plus one bump to their AC, and some of them pick up additional abilities, like the werebore gets a charge and they get relentless, so the first time they get dropped to zero hit points, they can choose to fall to one hit point instead. Strangely enough, that one has a cap on the damage that they can do it. Oh. If the attack deals more than 14 points of damage, they can't use that ability. Interesting. I don't know why, but that's how they decided to word that one. So was the Werebore Rocksteady or Bebop? Never could keep them separate. You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> I never I never watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Heretic. I grew up with three channels, James. <laughs> None of them had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on them. <laughs> you knew it was Sunday because there was nothing but preaching and fishing. And eventually golf and football well, in the okay. afternoons, you know. Well, on a good season, yeah. yeah. And then I think the where tiger gets a pounce. Okay. Which the tigers have where, you know, you have a... You can leap and attack something and they have to make a strength save. And if they fail, you knock them prone. Okay. I mean, again, that makes perfect sense. Uh, yeah. It's it's a tiger. It's yeah. a thing tigers do. It's going to do tiger stuff. So all but the werebore in 5e gain keen smell. Okay. And the tiger and the wolf also gain keen hearing. So they get advantage on perception checks using smell and hearing. Okay. Again, that makes perfect sense. Again, right, because they're predators. Yeah. They have that. So in third edition, in addition to all of that stuff, they also had an empathy ability where they could innately communicate with any other natural creature of their creature type. So like werewolves would naturally be able to communicate with wolves and dire wolves. Okay. Where rats would be able to communicate with rats, giant rats, dire rats. Now, with that, was it within just the species or family? So, like, could a werewolf communicate with all dogs and dog families, or was it specifically with wolves? It was wolves? specifically with wolves. Okay. And then they also all had low-light vision, just as a flat bonus attached to lycanthropy. Low light vision doesn't exist in 5e. They did away with it and just kept dark vision. Um, low light vision, if you were unaware, is where you can see in dim light as if it were bright light, but you can't see in darkness. Right. Like you can with dark vision. Mm, they too, this makes sense. Again, these are predators, specifically at night because they are lycanthropes. Um, yes, most so. of them are nocturnal creatures. Right. And lycanthropes, they change in the nighttime. Right. So it makes sense for them to be able to see in the dark. Exactly. Well, again, depending on which lore base you want to go, was kind of disappointed and frankly surprised the whole werewolves on a full moon, Universal Studios. Yeah. So the second edition lycanthropes didn't really have any additional mechanical bonuses to them. Some of them had additional special attacks that they could do, but there was more variety yeah. in the second edition Monster Manual. So in addition to the core five that have continued through to today, which are the were-bear, were-boar, rat, tiger, and wolf, you also had the sea wolf, which was half wolf, half seal. So basically it was a killer whale? <laughs> it was a sea lion. Oh, fair enough, yeah. But, but it was using the heraldic 
animal depiction Ooh. where the top half is a wolf and the bottom half is a seal. Interesting. Yeah. Apparently they really hated anybody who made their living on the sea, so they would, like, attack ships. Oh, that would be awesome if you're running a pirate adventure. That Absolutely. would be terrifying. Just imagine, like, a bunch of these, like, launching themselves from the waves onto your ship. Yeah, and so the small ones, the normal lesser sea wolves were, you know, seven to eight feet long. Oh, the small ones. <laughs> the big ones were 10 to 12 feet. Oh, they're, like, almost elephant seal-sized. Oh, so... Like I... Almost walrus-sized. And it also said that they, what they would do is they would swim up to a ship, change into their hybrid form to climb aboard the ship, kill a couple of people real quick, take their weapons, and then launch an attack in earnest. Because oh. they have the natural lycanthrope resistances of, you know... That is vicious. Yeah. I want a pirate cove of these things. And that would be amazing. And also, you know, if they were to encounter a ship that would have defenses against them, so it would have magic weapons or silvered weapons or what have you, they would just start chewing holes in the bottom of the ship. That makes perfect sense. I was thinking with as large <laughs> as you are, again, I grew up in Central California, so the Central Coast of California where the elephant seals come and rut and birth, these things are not small. They are massively huge. So I could see climbing up the mast, hopping off, switching to your, you know, 11-foot, 2,000-pound animal form and just driving a hole through the center of the ship. You can swim off what? Absolutely, yeah. So there was that. There were werebats. Okay. Werebats sound somewhat familiar. Again, we're touching a bit kind of uh, similar to some of the vampirism and some of the things you might see in White Wolf Studios, particularly with the Masquerade. There were also werefoxes, also called foxwomen, because it was a form of lycanthropy that only affected human and elven women. They were foxy. They were foxy. Uh, it was... <laughs> It was one that was based entirely around, you know, vanity and pride. Okay. So I guess the men were turned into peacock. Look at my plumage. <laughs> the, the men were turned into dinner. Oh, well, that happens yeah. too. And apparently they were also barren, so they would steal children. Interesting. I didn't read too, too much into it, but... I could see this. I mean, if you wanted to take that into, like, a modern setting, I'm seeing something like the night hag or some of the hags would do, especially with yeah. the Curse of Beauty where they tend to resent it. And, and it would also work for fey creatures. Yeah. Because, you know, the whole lore around changelings. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense, too. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Both of those. Ooh. That would be kind of interesting, especially if you did, like, a Feywild campaign. That would actually be really interesting to... Yeah, I like that. Or do, like, an Arcanaloth that is masquerading Ooh. as a werefox. Yeah, I like that. And then the last one was the were-raven. Interesting. So they look like Kinku. Okay. Uh, but they are able to fly. Nice. Always an advantage. And they don't have the curse that the Kinku have of, you know, the mimicry. Gotcha. And all that. Which, again... I want to emphasize is an optional rule. You don't have to do mimicry to play a kinku. Yeah. That said, it could be a lot of fun. Again, having a parrot and just like what the parrot comes up with on its own sometimes is <laughs> great times. <laughs> yeah. So moving into talking about lycanthropes in combat, the weaknesses of lycanthropes have been largely uniform through the editions because they are based off of what, as far as they were concerned, was the established lore. So they're vulnerable to magic. They're vulnerable to silver weapons. Right. And again, that silver being a pure metal has always been a thing for the, the other or evil creatures, things like that. And again, 
different kinds of magic because you do have a lot of lore, particularly Eastern European lore that kind of feeds into this. So magic things or herbalisms, things like that are very much going to run strong. Absolutely. And in second edition, especially because the way that they set up creatures with their resistances to weapons and such, a lot of them you had to have a magic weapon of a certain quality or better. Yes. So, for example, the were-ravens were immune to everything except for silver and plus two or better magic weapons. Oh, interesting. So, you know, even if you had a magic sword, if it was only a plus one magic sword, it wasn't going to actually do anything to a were-raven. Right. Well, and that was the thing in second edition, too. To even be able to hold any kind of magic, it had to be at least a plus one. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's interesting that immune to anything, but plus two. That's plus two or cool. better, yeah. So that's like green slod level. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I like it. It's impressive. A little terrifying. Kind of like it. Yeah. So one thing that I did notice is that if you were to take the stat blocks entirely as written and not extrapolate at all, at least in third edition, they only had the weaknesses to these weapons, to the silvered weapons and the magic weapons... While they were in their beast or hybrid form. Okay. They did not retain those weaknesses whenever they were in their humanoid form. Oh, I was unaware of that. So they were still resistant to all attacks in humanoid form as well? I don't remember. I would have to double check and look. Okay. It would make it easier for a lycanthrope to blend into society. Yeah. And would also provide an added incentive when things start turning south for them to transform. That does make sense, yeah. So it, it becomes a more dynamic tool that way. Yeah. And I really like that. Yeah, I do too. And again, that does flavor. It does make either your DM or your characters think about how they are going to play their characters, what they have in their tool set, what they can use to their advantage. Yeah, and going back to talking about the silver weapons, in the second edition Monster Manual, it does also specify that not all lycanthropes have to have a weakness to silver. You can choose other metals. metals. Okay. So you could choose to go with another pure metal like copper or gold. Okay. Or you could choose to go with, say, bronze. Okay. Something that would be less common to find in your typical D&D setting. Right. Or you could make it vulnerable to a certain type of wooden weapon. Getting a little bit on a tangent, but like vampire lore... Typically, the stake was specified as an oak stake. Oak or ash, yeah. Oak or ash, um, which are trees that have very prominent pagan symbolism right. attached to them. Oak trees are very much a symbol of life. Yes. And so vampires being a creature of death, staking them with an oak stake is a symbolic thing of life. And that would tie into, like, some of the old Revenant lore that we discussed last week, yes. where the old werewolves and vampires actually tend to run fairly close. Something like dogwood would actually be somewhat fitting. Hawthorn is definitely a wood used for a lot of fae, so again, I could see where you would use that against an evil creature as well. Yeah. This would definitely be something that your druid or your ranger would probably come up with, mm -hmm. especially blessing your shillelagh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I would definitely see that. Uh, many also have other weaknesses, specifically dealing with plants. One example that immediately comes to mind is werewolves and wolfsbane. Strangely enough. Depending on the lore, wolfsbane might just cause an immense amount of pain. So you make an infusion of wolfsbane, 
you coat your weapon in it, right. and it deals extra damage, almost like a poison. Yeah. Or it might kill them outright. Okay. If you can force them to ingest it. Right. Or it might just force the werewolf to revert back to its humanoid form. And that would make a lot of sense. And again, if you're going to do this as a DM or a player, this is a great time to make use of that herbalism kit or that poisoning kit or those nature skills that never get rolled. Yes. This would be a wonderful time to do that. And again, this would give a class like the ranger a bit more time to shine. Same with the druid. Or if you're just, you know, for whatever reason, you knocked up that nature skill. Those are really some of the underutilized skills and rules, I believe. Yeah. Now, going to the other side, the sort of benefits that a lycanthrope would gain, one of the things that they got in 2nd edition was whenever they reverted from their beast or hybrid form back into their humanoid form, they would automatically heal a portion of their wounds that they accumulated while they were transformed. Okay. Um, so whenever they would transform from their beast form to their human form... You'd roll a d6, and it was d6 times 10%. Okay. So the total amount of health that they lost in their transformed state... Right. They would automatically heal 10 to 60% of those wounds whenever they reverted. So you're telling me this, and my mind immediately goes back to those sea wolves we were talking about. Yes. That would be vicious. So they board the ship, they're in their beast form, they're sitting there, they're waylaying the ship's guards or whoever's on there, and then they get beat up to a point, and then they switch back to their human form, heal up, grab weapons, and still fight you toe-to-toe. Yeah. That would be a fun, fun scenario. Yeah. And so this would also help a lycanthrope NPC blend in with a crowd. Yeah. Because they would be able to fight for a while if it starts turning sideways they could run away, yeah. revert, yeah. and the wounds that you inflicted on them might just close up. Yeah, so they're not bleeding. That kind of makes me think of the old Assassin's Creed game where you'd sit there and set off a bunch of alarms and then you'd say, you go run off and then you like walk with some monks or something yeah. for a little while. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So going into the rules a little bit on contracting and curing lycanthropy. Okay. Um, there are four primary ways... Listed in second edition to become a lycanthrope. You lick one. More like one licks you. Oh, okay. Uh, on the inside. <laughs> so first one is being infected by another lycanthrope. That happens. Second one is being inflicted by a curse. Okay. Third is being in possession of a magical item, which allows for transformation. Okay. And the fourth one is being the offspring of one or two lycanthropes. Okay. And again, going back with this, this does tie into a lot of the real-world mythology that we discussed last week. The magical item that would transform you into a lycanthrope would be like the Hexen Wolf. The curses would... I mean, we talked about various deity curses, either because you were not holding up to your religious duties or because you had angered some deity in some form. That fits that being bit and transform. Again, that ties in with some other ones. That one's a little less pronounced. And then, again, with the Celtic lore, there was a lineage of lycanthropy. It was heritable. So from 3rd edition onwards, your chance of contracting lycanthropy via injury was based on whether or not you could pass a flat fortitude or, in 5th edition, constitution saving throw. Okay. 2nd edition had a more dynamic version, one that I actually really prefer. Okay. I mean, again, second edition was all about the table. So once combat was over, okay, after you finished fighting the lycanthrope, right. you had a percentage chance 
of contracting lycanthropy. Okay. And the percentage was based on how much damage the lycanthrope dealt you. I like that. So, in most cases, it was 1% per point of damage the lycanthrope dealt. Okay. So, if you took 24 points of damage, you had a 24% chance of contracting lycanthropy. You take your D percentiles, you roll it. Did you roll 24 or under? Congratulations, you're a werewolf. I like that. That seems kind of reminiscent of Morrowind, the last expansion for Morrowind. I'm going way, way back now for Elder Scrolls. Yeah. That seems kind of close to how their lycanthropy transmitted as well. I don't, I don't remember exactly what those rule sets were, but it's also fairly close to how the vampirism would transfer mm-hmm. over. And you didn't realize it until like a night or two after you, you started having weird dreams or things like that. Yeah, unless you happen to check your stats and notice that you have, it's like, why are my numbers red? Who checks stats? Yeah. <laughs> as long as I can carry all my stuff, I don't need no stats. <laughs> don't need no stinking stats. So some lycanthropes, like the were-raven, for example, had an increased chance. So were-ravens were 2% per point of damage they dealt. Okay. And others were a flat chance if you met certain criteria. So like the were-fox, if... They dealt at least 14 points of damage, and you were an elf or a human woman, Mm -hmm. you had a 50% chance of contracting it. Oh. Again, that gets a little sticky with who and what and what kind, but it does make a lot more sense. I mean, yes, a fortitude or a constitution roll is easier. This does make a lot more sense. And then, two, weirdly, this makes your more delicate classes, like your wizards and your sorcerers, a lot less likely to contract lycanthropy because they're just going to outright die. <laughs> or they're going to avoid melee combat. Yeah. So your barbarians and your fighters and your paladins are the ones that are going to be most likely... Oh, your clerics. Or your clerics, yeah. Oh, that would be fun to do to a cleric. Yeah. Religious crisis. <laughs> so that method, the second edition method of a percentage chance, that works a whole lot better for games like D&D or Pathfinder, where your characters are going to have a large pool of hit points. Yeah. Um, if you go into a game like Monster of the Week, where you don't have this huge pool of hit points, yeah. you could do a similar thing. What I would suggest doing is because the way it's set up, you have the ability to take a certain amount of harm. Okay. And so each attack deals so much harm. Okay. And so you keep track of how much harm... The werewolf deals you during combat, and then you roll 1d6 per harm taken. If any of those show up as a 1, yeah, you contract lycanthropy. Yay! <laughs> it burns when you pee. Wait, what? No, that, <laughs> that is not what lycanthropy is, James. Oh, that's something different. I'm sorry. That is something very different. Oh. <laughs> and I would even, because luck is a mechanic in Monster of the Week, I would also allow the player, if they fail that roll, to just... Spend a point of luck to, to ignore it. it. I would I would make them re-roll it. I mean, if it's going to be luck, make them be lucky. No, because luck doesn't recharge. Okay. In Monster <clears throat> of the Week, luck doesn't recharge. And once you run out of luck, your playbook changes to the doomed. Oh. And worse things happen to you. So there is definitely a finite cost to spending luck. Oh. And I so I would absolutely just say, yeah, you can spend a luck to not become a werewolf. Per die or just per... For the whole roll. For the whole roll. 
Okay, yeah. I mean, if you're coming up to a werewolf and you're doing monster a week, I don't think that's going to be something that you should shrug off. I could see that. It would depend on how hardcore of a game you wanted to run. But I suppose, yeah. I could see, you know, coming across a werewolf and becoming doomed very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, the role happens after combat. combat. Right. So after all of the harm has been inflicted. So there's only one set of rolls. Right. Okay. But I mean, I could still see just the presence of this kind of monster could lead to a chance of doom. But yeah, I mean, you could work with that either way. I think both options would work. So as I mentioned, another form of contracting lycanthropy is through a curse. Second edition actually had a curse of lycanthropy, which was a touch range, six level spell available to wizards that was both necromancy and alteration. Ooh, that's a fun combination. And so the form of lycanthropy that you would take was determined by what type of animal blood the caster used in the ritual. Okay. So if they wanted to turn you into a werewolf, they would use wolf's blood. Okay. If they wanted you to turn into a were shark, they would use shark's blood. And it could be used to make pretty much any type of lycanthrope that you wanted to. I like this. And again, I could see how some second edition adventures would go where... You have your wizard, and it comes at a point that you want your wizard to cast this curse on you because you need a little extra oomph walking in. It would be one of those, you know, is the cure worse than the disease type thing? Is it worth it? But that'd be a fun thing to consider. And with the curse, you get your initial saving throw against the spell. And if you fail that and contract it, then this was a little bit confusing. This is how I interpreted the rules. You would automatically transform into your beast form... On the night before, the night during, and the night after a full moon. Okay. You get no benefit from rests on those nights because you're not resting. Fair enough. You're out on the prowl. Okay. Which, yay exhaustion rules. Oh, yeah. I forgot about those. (laughs) Yeah. So you would end up, at the end of it, if you're playing 5th edition, uh, at the end of the third night, you have two ranks of exhaustion. And that makes sense because lycanthropy is not going to be easy on the body. No, it is not. But you would get a saving throw... To revert back to your humanoid form each time you attack something. Okay. And then at the end of the three nights, whenever you transform back into your humanoid form for the third time, you get another saving throw against the curse as a whole. But you do it at a minus three penalty because you're exhausted. Interesting. I really like that, and I could see that used as a mechanic. Because the curse was intended to be temporary. Yeah. I like that. That leads to a lot of options and a lot of exploration. I could see people using that a lot of really fun different ways. Yeah. One of the big lore versions of a curse of lycanthropy, one that I really love because it applies to my homeboy, <laughs> Kelimvor, who became the Forgotten Realms God of the Dead. He started off as a normal human, right? but his family line was subject to a familial curse of lycanthropy. Okay. An ancestor of his was a mercenary and in a battle left his sorceress traveling companion wounded on the battlefield so that he could go and loot the city that they were attacking. As you do. And so as a result, she cursed him and his family line to where, I forget the exact details of the original curse, but it ended up morphing through the generations to where the point where Kelimvor was born, they would revert to a panther. Oh. 
uh, he they were were panthers, okay. and he would revert to a panther form whenever he would take a job if he did not demand payment for it. He could not do anything out of the kindness of his heart. He had to request payment for it. I love that as lore, and I would love to see a character playing something along those lines. So no matter what they do, and I'm getting paid, right? Where's the money? Show me the money. Money, money, money. And, I mean, that's one of those things. I, and I can, I can see, you know, one of those things where, you know, it's the person who is very downtrodden that they really want to help this person, but they literally have no material wealth to right. pay for it. Yeah. And you're like, look, just give me something. Right. I don't care what it is. It just has to be a thing. thing. You can pay me in service. Right. You can offer me a trade of services for this. Yeah. I can't help you unless you give me something for it. That would be a great Or thing. I'm going to turn into a panther and eat your face. <laughs> This would be a great thing for a good role player to do. I would love to see this. This kind of reminds me of, on my mom's side of the family, there is, you know, old Mediterranean traditions. So if you gift someone a knife, you cannot gift a blade. Otherwise, it will cut slash sever the relationship. So if anyone were ever to give anyone a knife for a birthday, a graduation, you have to give them, even if it's a penny, which is generally what it is, but you have to give something because you cannot gift a blade. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I've not heard that one before. Yeah. Cool. All right. So that's curses. As we mentioned, there are items which allow for transformation. Right. That's your hex and wolves. As we mentioned last time, I went and confirmed in the books, it is in Gehenna. On the third layer of Gehenna in the realm of Leviathar, the Lady of Pain, there are winter wolves that roam her realm that if you slay them and skin them and treat the pelts properly, they become... Pet you know, them, give them some water. They, they, they become cloaks of frost protection, which give you resistance to ice. Yeah. But if you don't do it properly, it turns you into a werewolf. There you go. And the standard treatments for... Lycanthropy don't work on you if you have this the item on you. Still. The item on you. Um, so I, I would say that you have to remove the curse to remove the item. Yeah. And if you remove the item, then you revert back to Yeah, your... that would make sense. And so there are some items that you can put them on or take them off, like the wolf skin belts from the Dresden Files book. And there are others that you put them on and they're cursed and you can't take them off until the curse is removed. removed and you're stuck with it. So yeah. Enjoy those fleas. <laughs> and then finally, you have what are considered natural or true lycanthropes, which are lycanthropes that are born as a lycanthrope. They're born to lycanthropic parents. Okay. And they are just supernatural creatures. Yes. Okay. So when you're attempting to cure lycanthropy, the method that you use varies depending on the method of your affliction. And see, I like this, especially if you have, like I said, a lycanthrope villain, because now your player's... Okay, they come, they meet the villain once or twice, they meet the villain, they have a battle, they figure out said villain is Lycanthrope. Oh no, you have this huge battle, the Lycanthrope most likely escapes or runs off, and now they're going to try to save or convert or otherwise, you know, maybe just weaken this back into a normal human so they can fight it. So now they have to research the villain to figure out what caused Lycanthrope. Was it a curse? Was it a magic item? Was it hereditary? And so this adds more layers on what your players need to do to solve this particular riddle. Yeah. 
So if you're afflicted with lycanthropy through a wound, <laughs> one of the methods that they offered for curing your lycanthropy was within the first hour of infection, you eat a sprig of belladonna, nightshade. Okay. It had a 25% chance of curing you. And a 50% chance of killing you. <laughs> yeah. If you survived. <laughs> if you survived. And if you survive, you are incapacitated for 1D4 days. It's D&D chemotherapy. Pretty much. <laughs> and if you ingest more than one sprig, it does not increase your chances of recovery, but it does incapacitate you for it 2d4 days instead. Oh, one sprig good. Three sprigs have to be amazing, right? <laughs> and it had to be a fresh sprig. It had to be less than a week old. Oh, wow. Okay. That is fairly particular. That is fairly particular. When contracting it as a curse, it could be removed with the remove curse spell. Fair enough. But it didn't automatically remove it. What it did was it allowed the victim to make another saving throw. So there was a chance that it wouldn't remove it. And it had to be done during a night of transformation. So it had to be made, you know, on the night before, during, or after a full moon. And again, a remove curse spell is a fairly high level spell yeah. for do you feel lucky punk, you know? Yeah, it, it's... Not so much in 5th edition. In 5th edition, it was brought down to a 3rd level spell because Bestow Curse was brought down to a 3rd level. level spell. In 3rd edition, Bestow Curse was 3rd or 4th level, depending on your class. Right. And then you also had Bestow Greater Curse, which was like a 7th level spell. Yeah. In this instance, I would say that you would have to upcast it. Yeah. In order to make or it Or even work. maybe like a Greater Restoration. Um... I don't think Greater Restoration removes curses. Really? I could be wrong. I would have to check. We'll have to double check that one. Future Ian here. I was wrong. Greater Restoration can be used to cure a curse. If it does remove curses, then fine. You can use a Greater Restoration, which is a fifth level spell that is appropriate. I would actually suggest upcasting Remove Curse to fifth level in order to do that. Okay. Because in second edition, I think Remove Curse was a sixth level. Or 7th level yeah, spell. It was a very high level it spell. It was a very high level spell in the earlier editions. Um, yeah, it was not trivial to remove a curse no. in 2nd edition. Because everybody died in 2nd edition. Everybody. <laughs> and it was specified that cure disease and other healing magics like that have no effect on lycanthropy. Okay. Because, I'm going to assume because of its nature, it isn't just a disease. It isn't just a curse. It is a magical disease curse thing. Thing okay. kind of like mummy rot. Okay, and actually, mummy rot would be a very good parallel because yeah. mummy rot is something that afflicts you and gradually wears you down until the point where you die and become a mummy. Though mummy rot was nerfed pretty hard in fifth edition. It was, and then finally, true lycanthropes. So people who were born as a lycanthrope, they cannot be cured of their lycanthropy. That makes sense. Um, it They're is just born that way. It is an innate part of their being, and as such, there is no cure. I like it. So no praying the werewolf away. <laughs> yes. Conversion therapy does not work. Conversion no. therapy does not work. I'm just going to leave it right there. Right we'll there. stop. Yeah. Conversion therapy does not work. Please stop doing it. Yes. It is bad. Okay. Just, just stop. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> moving on. Talking a little bit about making your own lycanthropes and how you might roleplay them. Okay. Let's talk about <laughs> making your own lycanthropes first. Second edition book has some really great guidelines on creating your own lycanthropes. I'm going to read this one section in particular on choosing your animal type 
for what you're going to be making a wear something of. Virtually any predator between the sides of a small dog and a large bear can be the basis for a type of lycanthrope. Most... Wear weasel. <laughs> okay. Most, but not all, true lycanthropes are mammals. Most, but not all, are carnivores. An animal type used by the DM to create a race of true lycanthropes should be a carnivorous mammal with animal intelligence. Okay. Or, rarely a reptile, bird, or even fish with animal intelligence. There has never been a reliable report of a were-amphibian of any type. Interesting. Induced lycanthropes by spell or item can be created using a wide variety of animals and even monstrous creatures. That's slightly terrifying. So, as I suggested earlier, were-sharks. Yeah. Were-sharks would fit into this category. Like a Sahagan were-shark. Oh, Nice. You know, having that Sahagan warband leader that was also a were-shark. Yeah, I could see that. That would be terrifying and so lore-appropriate. It would be. It really would be. I would love that. Another thing I would like to see, we talked earlier, you know, about the benefits that the were-creatures get. And they generally get that good strength buff, right? You know, they go up to 19 or 18 strength. What if you did a were-honey badger, and instead of strength, you went to 20 constitution? (laughs) Honey badger don't care. You go to 20 constitution, you get immunity from poisons. <laughs> that would be a thing. That would be kind of fun. So with statistics and attributes, they say to determine new lycanthrope stats, uh, extrapolate from those of the base animal and existing lycanthrope types. So if the base animal is more powerful than a wolf, new lycanthrope should have more hit dice than a werewolf. If, if the base animal is similar to a giant rat the new were creature should have about the same hit dice as a were rat. In almost every case, the new lycanthrope should have at least one to two hit dice more than the base animal. Okay. I mean, that sense the reason. They have the same attack forms as the base animal type, such as claws, bite, tail slap, headbutt, whatever. The damage should be similar to that caused by the base animal. There is also a table in 3rd edition where the natural attacks showed the base damage based on the size okay. of the creature. So small, medium, large, or huge. Right. Because one of the examples that they had was a hill giant dire werebore. Oh. That which had a strength score of 41. Sweet Jeebus. <laughs> wow. Yes. I was going to go with moose just because I happen to love moose, and they're kind of massive and near impervious to everything, but a giant werebore, that's just terrifying. Mm-hmm. That reminds me, if you've ever seen Princess Mononoke, the angry boar spirit at the very beginning. Yes. 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 So AC depends on the animal's natural toughness, speed, and dexterity. A lycanthrope should have slightly better AC than the base animal, perhaps by one or two places. Again, stands within reason. Movement rate should be the same as the base animal, as should diet and habitat. Morale should be one category better than that of the base animal. So... Yeah. We We talked a little bit about morale a few weeks ago. Right. Morale scores were a thing in first and second edition, not so much in later editions. Yeah. A fun thing, again, if you want to go back and revisit that episode, morale would be a fun thing to bring back to the table. I hope it does get revisited. I think it does add a lot of context and flavor to combat sessions. Yeah. In older editions, lycanthropes tended to have a definitive alignment. Right. I'm glad that we're getting away from a standard alignment for creature types because it does allow for a little more dynamic 
play at the table. It does. I think a lot of this, and again, as we discussed last week when we were talking about the lore, can depend on the reason for your lycanthropy. And if you are cursed by a deity or a creature because you have done something evil, then it would make sense that you are now locked into an evil or chaotic or whatever that is. If you've taken an action that would shift your alignment, then to lock you into that alignment while you are in this werebeast form would make a bit of sense. Right. And I can also see your humanoid form and your beast form Having different alignments. Yeah, you'd have like a total Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde type Absolutely, thing. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, there, there's a good example of a yeah of a wear creature transformation, Dr. Jekyll, well, Mr. Mr. Hyde. Hyde. Yeah, exactly. And then so with vulnerabilities, true lycanthropes share a vulnerability to silver weapons. Extremely rare variants may have no such vulnerability, but instead may have developed a weakness to other precious metals, such as gold or copper, or perhaps to bronze, obsidian, or even wood. Yeah. And again, if you want to do the whole obsidian thing because of George R. R. Martin, that's, um, would not be outside the realm of expected, but not a bad idea. And that would also be a great thing for if you were doing like a Meso or South American game. Oh, yes, that game. would be great. Oh, great idea. Yes, because they didn't have as much metallurgy yeah. going on. So, you know, a gold or obsidian weakness. Well, yeah. And again, obsidian, especially in Mesoamerica, was specifically used in a lot of religious rites. So that would make, again, a lot of sense. Yeah. Great idea. Yeah. So some... Ooh, a werequaddle. A wind serpent. Nice. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so the way that I would approach it is your form of lycanthropy would be tied to the classification, if you will, of your humanoid form. Okay. So like an aquatic creature like a Sahagin would be more inclined to an aquatic form of lycanthropy. Understandable. Like yeah. sharks. Right. Whereas, say, a reptilian humanoid, like a kobold or a lizard folk or a dragonborn... Yonti. Or Yonti, might suffer from a reptilian sort of lycanthropy. Okay. So, So, like, a were-snake or a were-turtle. Were-crocodile. Were-crocodile, yes. Oh, that'd be fun. Yes. I can totally see... Like a lizard folk shaman that is a were crocodile. Absolutely, that'd be amazing. That would be so cool. <laughs> and again, dipping back into other games, I recall playing a version of uh, Vampire the Masquerade where the clan uh, Gangrel has the ability to take an animal form. And since my person was playing in like 1800s Louisiana and it was an escaped slave, my character, his animal form, in fact, was an alligator because it fit for the theme, the time, the location. That yeah. was actually a lot of fun to play. That was, yeah. So with a more amphibious creature, so something like a grung or a bullywug, I could totally see, like, a were-toad. A were-toad, no, again. Or a were-salamander. That or, would almost or, have to be from a curse because they said from the thing, but... Just because it says, says doesn't mean there have enough. there has never been a reliable report yeah, of a were amphibian. They live in the swamp, and it's not like they're we're hostile a... to outsiders. They're not going to let some researcher just come in and document their lycanthropy. Fair enough, and it's not like we're a homebrew podcast or anything. Yeah. <laughs> that said, a uh, were salamander with like the mythical salamander abilities to cause and start fires. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because especially if it was induced by a curse, they can be monstrous creatures. Yeah. So, yeah, a mythological salamander capable of producing fire. Oh, yeah. that would be amazing. And, like, the moment you change, you send a burst of fire around you. And so you are terrified 
of changing around other people or communities or things of value. So you're trying, I mean, that would definitely make you like the Wanderer archetype and stuff. If you're going through like the roles and stuff in fifth edition and archetypes, that would be a a great way to do that. And then with avian bird people, so like Aarakocra or Kinku, having a Kinku were-raven where suddenly they're able to fly. Oh, yeah. That would be so cool. There'd be so many curse words. So many curse words. That would be so cool. And I can fly them effers. <laughs> or, you know. Because they don't have the mimicry stat either. So they could, they could just, un- anything they wanted to say, all that. I, w- I, would s- I would say that, you know, they would, because they retain certain Some elements days. of their base race whenever they. Right. Because it's just a template that lays over. Yeah. I mean, they're still a kinku. Yeah. I would want to see that, though, just so, like, when they change, they have that brief moment to unload all of that baggage that they've been saving <laughs> and just unload on every, like I said, there'd be so much profanity. It'd be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about some role play aspects okay. just to wrap up here. So how would society respond to lycanthropy? Most lycanthropes per lore distance themselves from society right. intentionally. Yes. There are some lores where the stronger the emotional attachment a lycanthrope has towards an individual, whether positive or negative, the more likely they are to seek out and attack that individual when they transform. Right. Because whenever they're in beast mode, they don't have that sense of good emotional or bad emotional connection. Right. It is just a strength of emotion. Bestial neutral. Yeah. And the stronger the emotion, the more they want to eat it. Right. It's, it's like where the wild things are. Yeah, I get that. And so I think a large part of this, it would depend on your setting. So if you're trying to do kind of more of a modernish slash Victorian D&D setting, or even a straight medieval, you know, D&D setting, I think such characters would probably be an anathema to most people. Yeah. The strange case is maybe the king would keep one as a champion. As kind of an ace up their sleeve. Well, well, great. Here's my werewolf. Ta-da. Where maybe a more primitive culture or a more naturalistic culture, like a druid grove, they might hold a very high role in that society because they can in tune with nature so closely. Yeah. And I would definitely see that King's Champion role being something more of a were-bear or were-tiger than a werewolf. Yes. Um, Because per lore, were-bears and were-tigers tend to be more solitary. Yeah. Where bears, because they don't want to spread their affliction. Right. They have that conscious thought of, I don't want other people to have this. Right. Whereas where tigers also don't want to spread it, but they don't want to spread it because that creates competition. Right. That is a change in mindset between the two. Where wolves tend to be social creatures. They more tend to wolves, be, bigger pack, more for us. Yeah. And that is something that is expressed is that, you know, werewolves, you might have a pack of half a dozen werewolves that are running with a dozen wolves. Right. That is something there. And then where boars specifically, they enjoy spreading it. Yeah. They're just assholes. (laughs) I mean, they're boars. And pigs are actually a lot more intelligent than most people give them credit for. And And they propagate quickly. They propagate quickly and they can be kind of sadistic. Boars are a strange creature. They are. And if you look at some of the wild boar 
infestations that they have, especially in the South, like in Alabama right. and Mississippi well, and They're just going to run over your stuff. And- um, well, a wild boar sow can have two litters, sometimes three litters in a year. A litter is often somewhere in the neighborhood of 9 to 11 piglets. Yeah, that, that's a whole lot of hog. Even if only half of them survive, that's, you know, five or six additional pigs every six months. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. And they can really, really tear up an environment. And like I said, a lot of them seem to outright enjoy it, which is really, like I said, there there is a, a strange intelligence to pigs and wild boar. Yeah. And then with where rats... They tend to have a certain amount of cleverness to them, and they will form into organizations uh, like thieves thief guilds. Guild. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can um, see the same with uh, the were crows. Yeah, with the were ravens. Were ravens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so they will form like an under society. Yeah, a society in the underbelly of a city. And what they will do is they will kind of like the way that the companions in Skyrim worked, where once you reach a certain rank, they offered you the gift of lycanthropy to become a werewolf. The same thing happens with the were-rats, is once you reach a certain point in their organization where they know they can trust you, where they know they can rely on you, they offer you this lycanthropy to become a were-rat. That makes sense. And again, rats and mice are are strangely social creatures as well. Yeah. And again, very, very intelligent. So I could see that going back to something like the were-bear, I would see that kind of more as either, like I said, a champion or even a hermit or a sage. And again, a great example would be Father Bear. Yes. Who tries to cure people of their lycanthropy if they have not killed or done evil acts. But he is removed from society to protect others. Yes. And to touch a little bit on the old alignments that were tied to these different forms of lycanthropy, where bears were typically neutral good. Yeah. Where tigers were typically true neutral. Where boars and where wolves were chaotic evil and where rats were lawful evil. Makes sense. So that is the arrangement that they had for them. Again, do with that what you will. Your Um, mileage may vary. Your mileage may vary. (laughs) I can definitely see like an organization of chaotic good were rats. Yes. Sort of a Robin Hood and his merry band. I would love that. That'd be amazing. Yeah, rob from the rich to give to the poor. Because they would know every little tunnel under the castle. Oh, the, the yeah. Treasuries. Oh, that'd be great. It would be amazing. Yeah. I want to do this. Yes, now. that would be fun. <laughs> so when, whenever I finally get an urban campaign going, I will have my band of merry rats. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to come up with a better name for it, though. Yes. But yeah, so... I think that pretty well does it. Yeah. I mean, again, the lycanthropes, there's a lot you can do with them. They can be a lot of fun. If you deal with old world mythology, great. If you kind of want to go straight from the book, great. Again, we do focus a lot on D&D, but you can take these to any system. They do translate very, very well um, because they are so well known. Yeah, I, I wish that I still had my copy of Werewolf the Apocalypse so I would have another system lore to look through and pick up, right. you know, how White Wolf did it as compared to what TSR and Wizards did it. Fair enough, yeah. But my wife made me give that one away because my shelf was full. <laughs> uh, she's like, you don't need to keep all of these. And I was like, okay, Aww. okay. I, I, I would, your wife is a wonderful lady. I would disagree with her. Uh, well... I mean, at least I know who has the book, so if I wanted to go and read it, I could Fair enough. do that. <laughs> so yeah, I think that pretty well wraps up Lycanthropes for us. 
A couple of quick things before we get into our sign-off. I was recently on an episode of The Goblin's Corner with Eric and with Mike from 19 Hits the Dragon. Matt was a little under the weather, and so Eric invited us on to have a DM panel. So I encourage you to go and check that out. They're always fun guys to interact with. Yeah, they sure are. So yeah, I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes to go and check that out. In two weeks, we are going to be having a guest on. Michael from RPG Academy is going to be coming over to talk about his new Kickstarter that he's got launching. Huzzah. It launches on February 28th. It is called Action 12 Cinema, which is a B-budget action movie game set on a D12 die system. I'm loving this. Yeah, he's going to be coming over to talk about Action 12 Cinema, to talk about RPG Academy. I was on an episode of RPG Academy as well. I forgot to mention this right at the end of December. So I will also put a link to that in the show notes if you want to go and check that out. Dealing with B-movies, I'm going to have to brush up on my Chuck Heston impressionations. (laughs) Impressionations? Impressionations. Impersonations. Yes. I can English. It's been a week. It has been. So... Come and join us on Friday, March 3rd at 9 p.m. Eastern Time over on twitch.tv slash undercommontaste for the live interview with Michael from RPG Academy. It will also be our standard episode on March 8th if you would prefer to just wait for it to come out. So that's what we have coming up. Yep. So thank you, everyone, for joining us this week. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and Mastodon at UndercommonTaste. Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash UndercommonTaste. That's where our write-ups go. I'm working on some additional stuff for that. Uh, we pretty soon should have a website. Up and running. Huzzah. Undercommontaste.com. I don't think it's quite done yet. I'll have to get on the person who has my Werewolf the Apocalypse book to, uh, <laughs> to get that finished for us. And we also have a Discord. You can find the link to our Discord in the show notes. We'd love to have you come over and chat with us. Finally, we have an itch store. Undercommontaste.itch.io. We have a liminal horror adventure beneath the lake. We have my new solo RPG Forever Home. Uh, Both of those available for $3 if you want to help support the show financially and you don't want to commit to a monthly subscription, you can go over and pick up copies of those to help support the show. Again, if this is your first time listening to us, thank you and we are so happy you found us. Uh, You can find our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. We're on Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio. As always, please subscribe and give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Also, I would like to suggest, as we've said over the past few weeks, check out the itch stores or things like that. Explore some different game systems. Let us know what you're playing. This would actually be a lot of fun to see what what people are playing now because there has been a definite bit of a renaissance with some other tabletop games out there. Stay safe, everyone, and we will see you in two weeks with Michael from RPG Academy. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. 
You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash David Sutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe and we'll see you then.